here to accept the DuPont Silver Baton all the way from Minneapolis, please welcome the principal of Lucy Laney Elementary, Maury Melander Friesleben. Thank you. Oh no, stop, sit down. So a note to all the journalists out there, apparently bring your subject to accept the award on your behalf. I went to school to be a journalist. I wanted to shed light into dark places and my path turned out differently, but I never would have had a way to show what we're doing without people like you. And so my message to you today is may you never stop. May the likes of people like me continue to trust the likes of people like you so that you can shed light in dark places so that we can be different and we can be better. That was one of this year's DuPont speeches, delivered not from the winning journalists, but from their subject. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School, and I'm joined by my colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, for another episode of On Assignment, the podcast that brings you conversations with award-winning journalists here at the J School. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Abby. And can I just say, wow? I know, right? That was some moving speech. We just had to open this episode with an excerpt from Maury Friesleben's speech at our recent DuPont Award ceremony. She is the principal of Lucy Laney Elementary School in Minneapolis, and she is the subject of the unforgettable documentary that we're talking about today. She came to New York to pick up the silver baton on behalf of the filmmakers at local station CARE 11. And she was, I think I can safely say, the most inspiring speech of the night. Absolutely. She basically gave all the journalists in the room a pep talk from the heart. People were crying. She got a standing ovation, all for this documentary, Love Them First, Lessons from Lucy Laney Elementary, the school in northern Minneapolis where 90% of the students are black and 90% also live below the poverty line. Maury is a woman of color who grew up herself without resources and with her own backstory of trauma, which you learn about as the film unfolds. But she has become a force of nature, running this innovative school that is nonetheless technically considered a failing school on the books, but really it's as inspiring as Maury herself. Yes, a big part of the film is about this list, this failing school list, and how awful it is every year for the staff to have to send out a letter to parents informing them that once again they're on this failing school list. Even though there's so much wonderful teaching going on there, it's a real statement about the value or lack thereof of these metrics. So we were lucky enough to have the filmmakers stick around for an extra day after the ceremony. And after the screening, Lisa, you spoke with directors Lindsay Sievert and Ben Garvin, who also produced, wrote, edited, and <laughs> shot the film. And they did it all while they were doing their day job working at CARE 11, the local NBC affiliate in Minneapolis. This was CARE 11's first feature documentary, and it'll be a hard act to follow. We'll hear more about this in the episode, but the filmmakers actually embedded in the school for over a year to make the documentary. And mind you, again, all while cranking out daily news pieces for their station. A little heads up, you're going to hear a reference to a few of the people besides Maury, the principal. In particular, you'll hear about one rock star student named Sophia who just shines despite the really tough home life that you learn about in the film. 
We had such an informative and entertaining time talking to Ben and Lindsay, so let's get to this edited conversation I had with them. So let's talk about how this all started. Such a long journey. Um, make it short. Yes, yeah, really. Make, yes. Let's, let's do it short. Um, I'll make it short. Brevity here. But um, long story short, Ben and I both encountered Mari and our reporting and, and photography on different assignments. Again, the neighborhood of North Minneapolis, a lot of an epicenter of a lot of things happening, including a lot of crime. So a few things that brought me to the neighborhood was a drive-by shooting of a two-year-old boy that was killed on the corner of Lucy Laney. And that's what really, where I really witnessed Mari and her element handling that very difficult situation. And she talks about being that source of light. And I, I just, I witnessed that source of light. I, I saw her as a beacon and, and I couldn't stop thinking about her. Mm -hmm. One thing Lindsay and I were searching for is a good character, someone who, who we knew we could just spend time with and something would happen, something would. And so when, when you meet someone like Mari, uh, it was it was a it was a signal to us that that we needed more than 90 seconds. Like we get a 90 seconds on the news every day, and it's just it would be a shame to to have to condense that. So we made a pitch to our editor, our, our news director, and said, "Look, can you give us a year? Can you give us time to really embed? We'll do stories. We'll feed the news beast, so we'll be a value to the station. But let us really understand this story. And you know, it is unprecedented that a TV station would do that. And we we are grateful to Care 11. Like that was a gift. You know, I got uh, it was, it's kind of a new model in a way, but it allowed us to really be there when those moments happen and, and give Mari a space to really breathe, you know. But it didn't start as a documentary. This was right. going to be like an ongoing series of shorter pieces, right? Um, our pitch was just, let's spend one year inside the school and do a series of stories. So that's what really started out as. We produced maybe one to three stories a month, and we called it Lessons from Lucy Laney Elementary. And it sort of, the, these stories appeared on a, a show, a 6.30 show, so people started following it in the same show. And so um, it was a way that we gained trust with the community, with the school district, um, with the school staff. I mean, there were a lot of barriers to overcome to allowing us. I mean, the narrative of North Minneapolis is not kind, and it was very one-dimensional. This is a violent neighborhood that you shouldn't live in. And, and um, I think that I felt complicit in that narrative in a way of you know parachuting into the neighborhood, doing my one-minute story, parachuting out. And so for me, really what, what spurred it to, and I know Ben feels this way in this moment, is like, well, what is my responsibility to the situation? I can go back to my neighborhood in the same school district where my child does not have to duck for cover uh, when bullets fly near the playground. And, and what can I do? So for me, storytelling was my tool and sort of, I think, what generated this desire to go deeper. Um, but doing the stories it was sort of a roadmap for the documentary. And at what point did you say, this has got to be more? I, we kind of knew early on. I mean, I would say, and I think, Ben, you agree, that it was always a two-tiered approach. We would file our stories and give a newsroom what they needed, daily content, but we'd, on another track, um, gather uh, footage for the documentary. And you talked about um, gaining trust. Was Maury the way she is on camera right from the beginning, or did that develop over time? Both. I think there is a certain honesty in like character that Mari just presents no matter where she is all the time. She just says what's on her mind. And I remember at the you know in her staff meetings she would just she doesn't hide anything. Every, you know every every time something happens in the school she raises it to the highest level, calls the parents, figures it out, talks to people. What happened? Like she just leads with honesty and integrity. And I think th that that we she brought us in with that same dynamic. I, I remember early on. She warned us, you're not going to stick with this. It's too, too challenging, it's too hard, which was kind of a nice challenge for Lindsay and I because we're like, okay, all right, let's see what happens. You know, and, and, and then she also you know, warned, uh, you know, I don't want this to be a story about poor black kids, you know, but it's a story about poor black kids. 
And, and how do you get that right, especially for Lindsay and I come from a place of privilege, white privilege, and I think of ignorance, of ignorance of community, of what it's like to live as an African-American. But there was a healthy skepticism early on, and who wouldn't be skeptical? Like, we don't have necessarily a really glowing history in North Minneapolis as journalists. So I think that it took time. So there were people at the school who were just like, I don't want them here? Oh, absolutely. And they've since admitted to us how deeply they did not want us there <laughs> recently at a screening. I mean, it, there was tension within the school of Mari's decision to let us in. And, and she really felt like this is a public school. The door should be open to anybody who wants to come in. The district gave us more of a yellow light, like, hey, you can try this, but we reserve the right to pull you out if things don't go right. Um, I just want to say really quickly that because I was needed in a lot of newscasts reporting still at this point that um, Ben was more embedded in the school than I was. Uh -huh. And so he really went about three days a week and I say like he blended into the bulletin boards by some point. He ate school lunch almost every day with the kid. Yeah. It's so interesting. It's like the model of auditioning with these pieces that went on the air so that everyone in the community could watch them and judge whether or not you could keep going. You know, we often tell students, don't don't try and do stories about schools or kids because the, the barriers are so high. I mean, did you get buy-in from all the parents? How did that work? I, I think what happens with Mari is that if you have her trust, especially in that community, it's the keys to the universe, I like to say. And because they saw that she trusted us, then they're like, okay, if Mari says she's, they're okay, then, then they might be okay. And so, I, you know, I think from the teachers, it was a little, you know, slower. And then um, we had some parents that were definitely, you know, kind of stay away. But, but through time, like you said, this living experiment, they got to be the judge. And as the stories unfolded, I think that they saw that the beauty, you know, that, that, that we were really the, the, a mirror for. And, um, we really believe that we were vessels just reflecting back the beauty to the community and, and they loved it. I think after the film, everyone just wants to know what has happened to some of these people. So first, an update on Mari. She's no longer at Lucy Laney, right? That is correct. Um, she has been moved to be the principal of the feeder high school down the street, really. It's called North High School. Yeah, she's there, she's uh, scared. You know, you're leading a new student body and teachers who don't necessarily have buy-in, you didn't hire them, and so it's a real process of learning for her and the teachers. But, uh, you know, Mari talked about how she prayed about it and really it feels like the right move. And Lisa, the vice principal, has now taken over as um, the principal of Lucy Laney, which feels like the right move. And there's still the same culture at Laney and the same sense of love and, and, and whatnot. But it's, there's no one like Mari. Yeah, so that does raise the question. She's such a powerful and charismatic leader. And, you know, when when that's such a big part of a movement, what happens when that person isn't there anymore? And you're saying the culture continues? No, I, I, I think there is the culture, but there's no Mari. There's no one there who just everything you say is brilliant. You know, Lisa is a little bit uh, more reserved. Uh, she's an amazing leader, but she's not Mari Friesleben. And I think even Lisa recognizes that, you know, like you can't fill those shoes. And, you know, it is like you wish you could just clone Mari because uh, the, the public education would be better for it if we all had leaders like that and could recognize who could do that. But, I mean, it, we, I do have this fantasy that this film will, will help bring about more leaders and bring make leaders better, but inspire other teachers that, you know, it, it's, yeah. But she's also could just say that, like, I'm not the only one doing this deep work. And she feels like the seeds have been planted. And, and now they're, they're in the flourishing stage and that they're okay on there. They're more than okay. And they, she believes that, and she knows that. It's true. And they're still on the list, right, Lucy Laney? 
they are still on the list. And you know, there's one thing that we always remember is that Lucy Lane is still considered a failing elementary school. Like right now, it's, it's, it's labeled to that, you know, even though I think after you see this film, you realize that it's like anything but a failing elementary school. So I think one thing that this film has done in a way that was unexpected is about how, you know, this idea of how do you measure and quantify the value of a child. And what, however we're doing it is not right. It's not fair. It's, it's dimini diminishing human beings every day. And I hope that people can see this film and, and think about the way we're doing that and changing it. And that's what we hope. So let's talk about the kids because they're unbelievable. I mean, they make the, f I mean, Maury, Maury, but the kids, you just, you just eat them up. It's like confection. And there are good things and bad things about working with kids in films. Like you get a kid who says, she is kind and she is nice. And that's a soundbite. Like, cause he's just amazing yeah. when he says it. That's not, that doesn't work with an adult. Um, but there are lots of pitfalls too, I would imagine. I, I remember having a, like a three hour parade of children coming in to sit and talk to Lindsay and I. And so many of them, they sit down and you just kind of know right away that uh, my challenge is to see how quickly I can get this child out of the chair. Like they're not gonna deliver anything interesting. <laughs> and even though they're-, they're uh, And just I thought you dismissed them too quickly, <laughs> but. <laughs> they're, they're, they're just as valuable as any other child, but they are, you know, so anyway, but, um, yeah, it was, it was like a, I think also any child, any human being, if you sit down and truly give them like full on attention and, and, and actually don't lead them on, but just create a space for them to, to say something, they will say something really mm -hmm. pretty wonderful. And I, I, I think that's one thing I've learned is just, especially with children, to just create a, a safe place and then uh, let them know deep down inside that we really wanted to know what they thought about something. That we weren't, you know, then they're like, what? okay, I'm gonna tell you something that's really on my heart here. And, and that's when you get that, those golden nuggets, I think. Kids are just so trusting and they're, they're truth tellers and, and they, they can sense who you are. They can see right through you. And so when we sat down to talk to them, it was surprised like Sophia opened up just like that in a second. Sometimes we all have to fight the battle of that horrible thing that lurks behind hope. Disappointment, anger, frustration, sadness. We all have to deal with it, but it does get better. That's what hope's there for. You just gotta hope. You know, Sophia does that interview in which she tells you about her parents. Talk a little bit about navigating that, because that's, first of all, it's very sensitive. She's, she's revealing things. So everybody can know, our mom was doing drugs which did not help our situation. She's gotten arrested and taken to jail six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. She stays in jail longer than I can imagine. What's the responsibility there um, to using that material? And also, what's the responsibility to kind of coping with whatever trauma comes up. I think what helped was um, just always doing the right thing. You know, contacting the county, contacting her great-grandmother, asking the school social worker, um, building, you know, alliances and relationships with the principal. And even things like, you know, when she says stuff about her mother's record, I had to go check that. And um, afterwards, when the film was released, her mother um, was released from prison. And she came to one of the screenings. And um, at this point, her face was blurred out um, because we didn't believe that she would want her face shown. And she asked Ben 
to bring a form and, and sign the release form. She wanted her face shown. Um, you want to talk about that a little bit? Because you also showed it to her before it was yeah. public. Um, I, I, your, your question about asking such vulnerable questions to children, is like, it's, a, it's a valid, like how do you do that in a way that, because you know, you're, you're bringing these children into this room in the school, you close the door, it's private. That in itself is kind of a certain trust that is unheard of for a journalist. And then no other adult was there sort of monitoring. And, and so we, we knew we had to carry this carefully. And I, I remember I went over to Sophia and her grandmother's apartment with the laptop and I showed them all of the Sophia scenes, you know. And it was really hard, you know, we were all crying together, but I wanted to make sure that they had an opportunity to see that and maybe not approve it, but on some level approve it, you know, and, and at least know that that was there. And the same thing with Sophia's mother when we, she was out in, in, a, in a home, uh, you know, we took the laptop over and showed her all the scenes that included her before the, the documentary was public. If they had said, oh my God, you can't use this, this is terrible, what would you have done? Yeah, that's a good question. Even if that were to happen, I would have rather have that happen that in that moment in her home than in front of an entire audience of people and feel like her that vulnerable and, and like we violated her trust. So, so you know, we would have crossed that bridge. I think um, we were talking about that. We had uh, some lawyers thinking about this, but uh, I think ultimately, I don't know what would have happened. We, we probably would have had to change something. I, I wouldn't have wanted to produce something that, w I mean, I don't know. The school district asked us to change a lot. They oh. asked us to drop a lot of scenes. Like what? Um, a lot of the footage when Mari touches kids, you know, picked up a kid, you know, disciplining. I mean, it, they were nervous about a lot of things, and there was pushback and, and tension. It was, it was hard. Um, but ultimately, they came around in the end and said, "There's more good that will come from this film than harm." Mostly, everybody felt did feel comfortable in the end. Um, but we, it was a hard road to walk, wasn't it? I want to ask you one other question about the shooting. You you did this interview with Maury on the street corner of the neighborhood that she lives in, and that was that's always like a bold choice to do an interview outdoors. And did you go into that interview thinking this is where she's going to talk about her life story? And oh gosh, no! I can't believe you noticed that. <laughs> um, it was oh, yeah. an accident. I mean, it was an accident. We asked her all we knew at that moment. We were new to Mari. And, and all we knew is that she grew up three blocks from the school. So I said, would you mind taking me on a walk through your neighborhood just to show me where you grew up? And Wait, you didn't know that she no, was going to tell you? No, I didn't know any of that. We had no idea about the any abuse. Of that. So I remember she just stopped and she was swaying like this and I didn't know what was happening. She was kind of thinking about, do I do it here? And she just, it just started falling out of her mouth, the story, and Ben was fumbling with cameras. I, I remember <laughs> Mari looked at me and said, so are, are you ready? Like, I, she, she was like getting in the moment. She had been ready, ready to unleash this inner turmoil for a long time. This is a very emotional place for me. These were the corners I stood on to catch the bus. Now, the things that happened after that, they made me who I am today. But there were years that I could not drive through this neighborhood. But it was just such a powerful moment and it was like cars were driving by, it was not, it was imperfect. But it, it was, I think it was the only way she was ever going to get into that space, you know, being a, literally a block away from where this, mo this happened to her as a child. It, it was a, clearly a trigger and it brought us all in and she was just ready to share. To think that what they allowed or what they did to children in that house and me being one of those children is still a difficult pill for me to swallow to this day. 
we were we were stunned. Um, you know, and I, I had to even process myself because she didn't actually say the words sexual abuse. I mean, what you saw is exactly what she said. So I had to sort of go back later. And it was very delicate because she had really prayed about, she felt like if I'm going to do this, I'm going to share my whole truth. And um, she she said that at the cost of the relationship with her mother for a while. And there was some some turmoil because of that admission. Um, and they had to work out. And I think they're they're doing pretty well now. But um, Oh. Yeah, it was. It, it was. I was stunned, and um, you know, our instinct, of course, was that she had a story, but didn't know what. Stunned and also honored. You know, yes. honored yeah. to be there for her to, yeah. to to receive that, and that she'd be willing to share that. Like it was. That's that's like as a journalist, those are like the moments you'd never forget when someone is willing to do that, and you know, she'd never. She's been interviewed many, many times, and I think it was for whatever moment that that moment she chose to share that with us and and i hope and i think she does feel like we honored that and it and, lifted a burden and, and, yeah. it really did i yeah, think yeah. you know and she's never said to you i felt the need to tell you because she knew we wanted to go deep in the, the whole time we talked to her yeah. and the whole time we, we wanted to get under the surface of her life and we, we asked her questions about race and poverty and her growing up and so she knew we were ready to listen to that and that that we would take it and take it with great care. Um, did anyone ever try to shut the whole thing down? Was there anything that happened where that was it? It was going to be over? The, the closest um, reason we got to shutting the whole thing down was a year after the, we had finished, we were editing, we had mostly the film done. Oh. We, we, uh, uh, the school district said, we don't like your releases. We don't like your model appearance releases. You, you need to, you know, we think you're taking, it has potential to take advantage of children or whatever. So pr profit off of children. So we had their lawyers and all lawyers develop a new, um, model release but we had to have these students sign the model release a year after we finished filming and these are all students who are highly mobile and a lot of them had changed schools so that was uh, we thought for a moment not maybe we lost our film but we'd have to change it in a major way but we you know we hired a couple of really brilliant um, production assistants who uh, our company graciously paid for we embedded in the school had an office in the school basically all the teachers just took it upon themselves to track down these they all have parents phones and cell phones we, we hired someone to go out in the community um, we only had to blur like three or four faces in the end and there was no one uh, I don't think anyone said you cannot have our child in there. There was there was one, but I mean, okay. I, I, just to show you like the the breadth of this, we had to get I think it was more than 400 releases of ch vulnerable children. One year later, many who are in the child protection system. Oh my! And so um, we found people through social media in different states. I met people at their workplaces, um, and that one woman went door to door for us. It was actually very difficult. And um, the bottom line is, in the end. For every face that you see, we have a release and a guardian signature. And that was a gift of the, and a testament to the trust we built in the school and the community that everyone wanted to link arms and say, this will happen, we will help you. Um, you shot the whole thing. How did you pull it off? It feels like there was multi-camera coverage sometimes, no? Yeah, no, I did multi-camera when I was doing interviews like with the children. You know, I'd, I would bring in two cameras. And one interesting thing, I would bring the cameras really low, so, you know, and sit down, I'd sit on a really tiny chair. So, you know, I'm looking at the children, and I'm not looking down at the children. I think that's a small detail, but like that kind of stuff matters. And then, you know, initially it's like, oh my God, look at that camera, they get me on TV, you know, the kids are all me. But like uh, the third week, they're like, oh, this guy's back. And they kind of forgot about me. And, and <laughs> so I, I was able to capture those moments more naturally. So I'm just gonna ask you a few questions about structure. I just wanna say there was so much to love about the way this film was put together. And especially in the beginning, the beginning scenes that set up. Because when you're putting a story like this together, you have to accomplish so much at the beginning. That's often like, not 
that interesting. You have to explain who everybody is, you have to like set up the tension, you have to set up the stakes, you have to start, you have to feel like we're at the beginning of something. And you did all that like in this incredibly tightly woven way. And, and the other thing that I loved, just to say, is that you create a vibe about this neighborhood and this community. It's so joyful. Like that, that felt like it was really important that it not be what you think of when you, when you hear the news stories about the violence and the, um, the loss. How hard was it to structure this film? It's very hard, as we talked about earlier. In, in news, I would just say, this is a school with 90% of students living in poverty. And, and to be able to tell it with other people's voices was uh, just a beautiful challenge. One thing that really helped is we had four uh, focus groups where we brought in um, 20 to 30 people in the community. We held one in North Minneapolis and got real-time feedback on the documentary and how it was structured. And one thing that was sort of unclear as this list storyline was emerging was that people didn't understand what it was. What is the list? And you know, what how, five percent of failing schools? And so, it became clear to me that I had established that early on that the stakes were high. And um, how many versions would you say? There, I'm just asking for the, asking for some friends in the audience. We we had many versions of the film, maybe like uh, four or five, like what we thought were really good at the time versions that ended up being like, look at it now and it's kind of embarrassing, but we had many versions and then we tried the different openings, took a long time. Um, the power of the re-edit was, was you know, uh, just a wonderful exercise of what we didn't need because again, we, we dropped entire scenes that broke my heart at the time, but I know now it made it only more powerful. Um, I think, yeah, we also did edit though, what we've been told in a very quick fashion in the documentary world. So we really did this edit between eight to 10 weeks. Um, you know, I know a lot of people in the documentary. What? It, it was longer than that, I well, think. Oh. It was a, maybe a couple months. Well, well that's no. eight to ten weeks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We started the first week of January, and we had to get it to the the film festival it premiered in in, in um, the last week of March. Oh so I mean, it was God. really fast. But remember, we had a roadmap. We had these stories already created. Um, you know, we work really fast from two decades of being journalists, and so, um, anyways, many many versions. But we worked quickly because we gave ourselves deadlines, which in the end was really helpful. Yeah. Uh, I do want to ask you one other thing. Principal Maury said this to me, that she hated the title of the film. She hated it. And that's my fault. I, don't think I came I, up with it. I, I don't think hate. I don't think hate, but she, she was worried because... I think she said hate. No. Well, <laughs> she did. Well, I mean, I, I know, but I don't yeah. think she'd like... Honestly, I don't think she hated the film. I think she was worried about the title. And I think she, you know, I mean, hating, I, I, and she was worried because uh, love them first sounds, like you said, ushy and gushy and like, oh, And that's not the kind of love she's talking about. She's, she, she would explain to you, she's talking about the kind of love that says, I love you so much that I know you can be better. And I'm going to hold you to high standard. And I'm going to give you, she calls that tough love. Yeah, it's the kind of love that is firm and soft at the same time. And um, the kind of love that calls everybody to rise to the occasion and kind of love that is hung on hope. Now, before your next question, can I just briefly say your questions have been really great. Phenomenal. You know, uh, the, the DuPont Award has sort of given us a credibility that we, uh, it feels really good because in the journalism world, um, you know, local TV news, you know, it's hard. There's sort of a, a preconception about what's possible. And to have the recognition of Columbia, such a it's such an honor to be here, and it's really important to Lindsay and I in the film.
I wanted to know more about the photography. Like, were you just taking pictures throughout? What made you want to incorporate it? Like, there was that audio slideshow at one point. Did you film also and then decide to do the, the photos instead? That's a great question. Um, I have grown up as a still photographer in newspapers, and uh, and so that's kind of what I have loved to do. It's why I became a photographer, and so um, it's my comfort zone. And, and I think also still photography lets you sit with uh, a, an emotion in a way that is less distracting than video. Video is so literal. Uh, I also am just I, I love it because I'm good at it, you know. So I want to do what I'm good at. So there's that. Talk about in this, you know, poignant and challenging story, your use of humor. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, a, a good rule of thumb is what strikes you could strike other people, but I think Ben is, is really lighthearted, and I think he, you taught me how to see humor at a greater level. I think from years of just kind of being uh, enveloped in sadness from reporting, you know, I tend to kind of draw myself to those really deep storylines, and I think Ben kind of drew that, like, part out. Like, we laughed a lot putting this together, and that was, it was so good for the soul. I love to laugh. I love to have fun. But but I think in terms of the documentary, I, I think we're able to feel more deeply the the um, emotive sad moments after we've felt the bright moments. I, I feel like uh, it's a burden, uh, and and also I wouldn't want to sit through a documentary that just makes me feel sad. Like and and we could have done that here. I think we could have made this. We could have emphasized the the sadness in a way. But I think it almost lets you uh, enjoy the the lower lows. In a more lower way, you in the higher take highs, it. You can yeah, take you're, it. you're 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 ready. Relief. You're ready. Yeah, you're ready to take it. That's a really nice way to say it, Lisa. Like you're, you, you feel refreshed, and you feel like, and uh, and also maybe once you know when you know laughing is coming, and that's part of the film, you feel safer to just cry a little bit. Um, one thing I'll add is we were structuring it, looking at the emotional arc. We were very aware of when it was just too much, and so we really worked hard at balancing it. Look at you could almost see it on the timeline. You could see the emotional roller coaster on the timeline, and we knew when people needed that break. Back to Maury, though, what what was she before she was a principal? Was she a teacher? Um, you know, where did she learn how to lead like that? She, she was a middle school teacher. She, she worked at the district headquarters. Then she was an assistant principal, and then a principal. And um, I always say that her superpower is her vulnerability, and she leads with that. And um, she always reminds me of the difference that one person can make. And she's not afraid to let her guard down and she has a really good instinct for seeing the diamond in the rough with other staff and pulling that out of them and pushing them even when they don't want to be pushed. I think that's one of her gifts and someone who really helped define her leadership style is in the film Dr. Ann Garrity. She's the child psychologist that the district contracts with to examine trauma and we're really excited because we're going to be on a panel with her soon at a graduate school and and she just sort of helped Mari sort of crystallize what she was already doing. And like one example is um, that they realized that they had to sort of pour into teachers more in the school. So they had enough reservoir within themselves to be there for the kids. And what they found that the teachers were so burned out and they were experiencing what they call vicarious trauma or secondary trauma from serving their students. They had, they, they had nothing left. And so they really work on feeding the teachers and filling up their love buckets, as she calls it. So then in turn, they they have what it takes to love their kids. And so that's part of her leadership style. Uh, I just want to know how the children and the community have responded to seeing themselves on the big screen. And what are, what are their reactions? Are they pleased? Are they local heroes? I mean, just tell me about their reactions. Yeah. 
you want to talk about the local screening um, with the, when we brought the kids to the theater? Yeah. Yeah, we, they are local heroes, and the kids feel like movie stars. I remember walking around the school, and they're like, I saw myself on YouTube. You know, like they, they, they are watching all the YouTube clips over and over and over, and there is a celebration in the community like we are seen. You know, like when you finally feel like seen, uh, not just seen with flashing lights on, because I think that's, that's a lot of times how. So, so um, there was a certain pride, and I remember um, we had the idea, there's a Capri Theater in North Minneapolis, a gorgeous historic theater, and we rented it out for uh, a day and had three screenings and had a private screening with catered food. Um, we had some donations and uh, we had all the students and their parents and the staff and the North community in to see the film. And, and the, the school did a really good job preparing the students ahead of time because talked about how there's some really hard moments, you know, and, and part of being a family is to love people through those hard moments. So there, were, there was like a preparation for that moment. But I think, yes, there is, I, I, I've never sensed any um, trepidation about it. E even no. one of our most skeptical parents came and said, yeah. great film. Yeah, I will say that Mari just told me this though recently that she, you know, it's sort of simmered down in the neighborhood, but she said that she really gets sort of mobbed when she goes to the mall or um, more white neighborhoods. I mean, this is her words, that um, it's really, and we've seen it in all of our screenings. We've had, what, two dozen theater screenings probably by now. It's mostly white audiences um, that really feel opened up to a world that they, they didn't know. People saying, I, I had no idea that's six miles from my house. I, I didn't know that's what life was like there. And and really, I can say that about myself, like proximity changed me and um, the immersion in the community sort of changed and challenged me. And I think that's what the audiences are feeling as well. So the community is proud, but I think it's more eye opening for the larger Twin Cities people, community. People come up to Mario and just start crying. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. they can't even talk. It's, it's pretty <laughs> wonderful. And, and she says it's really awkward, but that happens she's in the supermarket all the time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. From the educational point of view, I wondered what will it take to get um, this school off the list and many other schools like it? Because they've made so much progress. I think that, well, we've heard the principals discuss this many times. It would be a re-examination of the standardized test, a reconfiguration of the standardized test. And I know there's been some discussion at our state level of should this be looked at again? Um, I think that's that's where they stand. Yeah, it's not a matter of working harder and working yeah. longer. It's a matter of changing the test itself. And Mari says people would rather spend a million dollars on more new staff and new facility rather than take a look at this test itself, which is written mostly f by white folks, mostly for white folks, to, and, and 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 it continues, like Mari says, to to, to promote and perpetuate sort of a, a power dynamic that is unfair. In so, yeah. will you? Is there a way to send the film to the Department of Education I locally? Think they've seen it. See this. They've yeah. seen it. No, not not. Mm -hmm. Oh, Locally, oh, federal. If, if anybody knows Betsy DeVos, give her a text. Oh, Betsy, oh, yeah. Send her this film. But we, we would love to have a screening in Washington, D.C. Yeah. We feel like it has a potential um, to change things. How are you getting it out into the world? Did you do film festivals? How's the educational community going to see this? Hmm. So important. Um, a little bit of everything. We started at a few uh, film festivals, mainly locally and regionally. Um, we sort of had a, a, a rollout plan with the station. Um, from there, what was it? Amazon? Yeah, we went to many different film festivals and won lots of fancy awards, which was really rewarding. And we also put it on, because since we're not traditional filmmakers, we don't have the, uh, we aren't necessarily, I mean, a, a filmmaker would be le hesitant to just give it away for free. But since we don't really have any investment and the, the station was most interested in broadcast, we put the entire film on YouTube. 
and it's on Amazon Prime. Amazon reached out to us after it was broadcast on Care 11, uh, and it was we were owned by a station by a, a company called Tegna, which uh, also aired it on 23 or 35 stations across the country. So that is an extraordinary moment for us as filmmakers to get the film out there. And after that happened, Amazon reached out to us. And now it's on Amazon. But I, I, I think Lindsay and I felt from the beginning this film is a celebration of teachers. It's a celebration of what public education can be. It's a chance to learn. And so uh, you know, we've so many teachers have said to us, we want to show this to our staff. And so we're like, do it. So anybody that you know who might benefit from this film, send them a link tonight. It's free, uh, and not just on Amazon Prime, but on YouTube. And we have uh, on lovethemfirst.com, we have a, a comprehensive discussion guide that Lindsay helped write in conjunction with Ann Garrity, the psychologist on the film, and Mari about all the different topics in the film, about African-American vernacular English, which is so important, and all about discipline, and trauma. about trauma, all these things that you can learn from. So w w we feel like this film has been use used as a teaching tool. Maybe Columbia wants to share it with their students in a more official capacity. That would be great. I think, I think the more people who see this, the more yeah. can think good things can happen. Good things indeed. I know I'm better off having seen this film, and I'm so glad it's as readily available to the public as it is, both on Amazon Prime and on YouTube. Right. And I have to say, this film really is a testament to local reporting, to boots-on-the-ground journalism, and to really taking the time to learn about a place while reporting on it. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad Christina Shaman with the help of our DuPont fellows, Carissa Kiambau and Jack Rossiter-Munley, and our DuPont coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our sound engineer was AJ Mangone, and our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at, at Columbia Journal. Until next time.